Father, we confess that as we consider our own lives, that we would not come to this conclusion on our own, considering what we have brought to the table, the things that we have done, the things that have happened to us. Uh, But because your word is true, because we believe it, because you are trustworthy and we can take you at your word, we confess that your ways are wise and they are perfect and we are in the middle of them today. The word of Christ is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Reveal your wisdom and your power in your word now as we hear it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please have a seat. Well, open with me in your copy of God's word to the book of Genesis. Book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 45 is where we will be this morning. That's page 38 in the Bible provided for you. Are you angry with yourself because of your sin? Maybe perhaps especially a very specific sin. One that rolls around in your mind every day. One that has been rolling around there for a decade or more. For maybe the better part of your life. It seems to follow you. It won't go away because it won't go away. Everywhere it seems there are reminders that you were wrong and you did wrong. The costs to you and especially the people in your life are enough already to bear. It is too much though to bear when you consider that it was your sin that put Jesus on the cross. Are you angry with yourself because of your sin? Well, I'm here this morning with a word for you, for your distress, a word of comfort. Let's begin where we left off last week in Genesis chapter 45. Joseph with his brothers. Joseph has lost his composure twice already. Both times he has stepped out of the room. This time he does not step out of the room, though he does open the door. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth. And to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all the house and ruler over the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. And you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come. 
so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. And he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept on them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And and you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons, according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and they were departed. And he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. We'll stop there. (laughs) Do not quarrel on the way. Joseph is so perceptive. Joseph perceives that this news that he is alive could bring trouble to their relationships. We need only think about it. The thought of telling dad that Joseph is alive will raise obvious questions. They would be tempted to blame one another and rehearse old, nuanced grievances, for they were all in on it. Do not be angry with one another, he's saying. But this is a side note. It is a parting comment along the way. It is grounded in his bigger message. Verse 5. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, Because you sold me here. His first concern is trouble in their own souls. And the Spirit's concern in inspiring this text, in part, is the trouble in our own souls. Anger with ourselves over our sin. This morning, I want to meditate on two questions What reason do we have to be angry with ourselves? And what is the answer? To this anger. First, what's the reason we have to be angry with ourselves? A reason for great distress, verses one through three, a reason for great distress. Our chapter opens with a scene charged with powerful emotions. Joseph is weeping so loud it can be heard throughout the whole house. He's been able to control himself by ducking out. But in this case, it doesn't matter if you're inside or outside the room. You know Joseph has lost it. They, the brothers, were dismayed at his presence, which was not just the presence of their brother, but the presence of 
their victim. Joseph's mind goes immediately to his father. He introduces himself and then runs right over to the question of dad. Well, their minds, the brothers' minds, are racing to replay the last days of their interactions with Joseph, maybe even the last 20 years and where they've imagined he might have ended up. They're examining his face. They're remembering his voice and remembering their offense. This is not just their brother. This is their victim. There are good reasons for distress with which we are all well acquainted. Reasons to be good and angry at ourselves. Let's take some time to meditate on on that matter. Reasons the brothers put to words chapters earlier. Turn with me to chapter 42. You'll remember we've been toggling back and forth between Canaan and Egypt uh, all over this matter of grain in the context of a famine. And when they first came to Egypt and encountered Joseph, did not know, of course, that Joseph was their brother. Um, And they were deeply troubled at the way they were being handled. Um, Too much attention. Verse 21, they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. They're talking to one another in their own language. They don't think that Joseph can understand. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you to not sin against the boy? But you did not listen. Now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. And Joseph is getting an insight into where these guys have come. At least they're putting some certain words to what had had happened. Perhaps they aren't so hard-hearted. He isn't so sure just, just yet. But lifting some of the language here from their own self-reflection, the first reason for distress must be sin. That's the word Reuben chose when he answered his brothers. Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? Our transgression against God's holy law. But it's more than breaking breaking a rule. It is breaking a relationship. When Adam took the fruit, he, he wasn't just saying, I don't like the rule. He was saying, I don't like you. I don't trust you. I don't need you. I don't want you. I don't want this. I want this, covetousness. When Cain killed his brother Abel in the field, only a page later, he did not just want what he did not have, as Adam did. He did not want his brother to have what he had. Worse than covetousness, envy. Cornelius Planningoff, Christian philosopher, says about envy, envy is a nastier sin than mere covetousness. What an envier wants is not, first of all, what another has, what is in another's hands. What an envier wants is for another not to have it. To envy is to resent somebody else's good so much that one is tempted to destroy it. The coveter has empty hands and wants to fill them with somebody else's goods. The envier has empty hands and therefore wants to empty the hands of the envied. Envy, moreover, carries overtones of personal resentment. An envier resents not only somebody else's blessing, but also the one who has been blessed. These are common to us all. And that sin was their sin against their brother. 
who stands before them now. And so scripture says, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And what we have on the page here is a real sin in real life with real people under a real curse because of a real connection with Adam. And for this reason, sin and death spread to us all. Sin is the first reason for their distress. There's a second reason, in their own words, guilt. They're guilty concerning their brother. But it's deeper than that, or shall we say higher than that. Turn with me to chapter 44. Verse 14. And when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, and they fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can practice divination? This is where they had been found with the silver cup that Joseph had planted in their sacks and were overtaken by his servant. Verse 16, And Judah said, Excuse me, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. And you remember last week, we puzzled over this a bit. Uh, Is he confessing a sin they haven't committed? They didn't steal the silver cup. I don't know that they believed that Benjamin had. If they believed that Benjamin had, here he is confessing for all of them. God has found out the guilt of your servants. No, they felt chased for years. They weren't guilty of taking the silver cup. Best they knew. But God had found them out. We're yours. God has found out the guilt of your servants. Sin and guilt. Their sin wasn't just against their brother. Their sin was against God. They weren't just guilty concerning their brother. They were guilty before God. Well, how did they respond to their sin and their guilt? Let's ponder this first, though, how any of us can respond and do respond to our sin and our guilt. I thought of four ways. Um, We can run from it. We can run from our sin and guilt. We smother it with TV. We crowd it out with business and work and web browsing. We, We grow dull over the years to it. We try everything we can to get as far from it. We may even move to get away from it. We may run against our sin like a competition and try to beat it with moral feats, volunteering in the community and the like, try to create as much good from our life as we have done wrong. Or we try to beat it with arguments, explanations, self-justifying rationalizations, beating it down. We grow proud over the years. We can run from it. We can run against it. We can run right into it. Why try to fight it? Give into it, indulge it, redefine it, define ourselves by it. We grow increasingly superficial over the years. We become like the sin we worship, and we turn the world upside down to justify it. And then sometimes we run under it. You know, I've got friends in my family, excuse me, I have family members who don't know Christ, and I could... There's a little bit of all of this. I know one family in which there is one of each of these. There's the last one. We run under it. This is where we 
we feel the crushing weight of our guilt. And we throw ourselves under it. We want to be crushed by the weight of our guilt. It's the only thing we know to do to get out of it, to deal with it. Because we can't live with ourselves for what we've done. We're your servants, Pharaoh. Just take us. We're not going home. Not with this on our conscience. Perhaps the brothers at different points did a little bit of each. Well, now the brothers are standing in Joseph's presence and they're alone with him. He is weeping so loud that it is heard throughout the whole house. They are dismayed, not just with the revelation of their brother, but with the revelation of their sin. And there's a third reason for distress, and it's condemnation, sin, guilt, condemnation, a reckoning for his blood, they see this as. They were haunted by their sin, and now it had come for them. Sin, guilt, and condemnation, a reason for great distress, and now they stand before for all intents and purposes, the world's king. But thankfully, that's not it. Now a greater reason for comfort. What's an answer to this problem? What's an answer to our anger at ourselves? A greater reason for comfort. The rest of the chapter, verses 4 through 28. What is the reason? Surprise, it's on Joseph's lips. He says to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, their hearts beating, no doubt. And he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. He doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't soften it. He doesn't say, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Don't think about it. Put it out of your mind. It's not what he says. That is not the answer. He doesn't say, you can repay me. I've got some ideas. I've been thinking about this. He doesn't say, let me just chew you out for a few minutes. I just need you to hear all the things that I've been through. There's some good news on the other side, but you listen. Nope. I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Well, why not? You better have a pretty good reason. For God sent me before you to preserve life. That's why. Don't be angry with yourselves. Don't be distressed. For God sent me before you to preserve life. You sold me, but God sent me. Well, how can he say that? We can think theologically and then we can think personally. Well, Joseph has not come to this overnight. And neither do any of us. Joseph has come to this over many years. Uh, There was a video that I saw this last week on YouTube. Who knows how you come into a video sometimes? There it was. Picture of a guy's face, and it said, guy takes a picture of himself every day for 20 years. Hmm. How long is that video? I don't know, seven minutes or something. How many photos is that? 7,300 photos. That's going to be interesting. So you watch him go from, I don't know, 15 years old to 35 years old. I don't want you to think I watched the whole thing. <laughs> I, I, um, I scanned ahead a little bit. I feel better. It's fine to watch silly videos like that. Just not all day. Don't smother yourself with this kind of material. But it is interesting And then it caught me that it was 20 years, and I thought I have myself an illustration for Sunday morning. 
So I'm actually doing work. (laughs) If you took a photo of Joseph every day for 20 years, you'd see the beard come off. You'd see the clothes go on. He would look like an Egyptian man. He'd matured. He was not recognizable to them. What if you could take a photo of Joseph's soul every day for 20 years? You would find Joseph on his face before God. You don't even need to take a picture of his soul to see that. You take a picture of Joseph and you would find him on his face before God. You would find him wrestling with God in prayer at each stage of his roller coaster story from the floor of the pit to the journey with traitors to the prison after being thrown there for keeping his integrity when Potiphar's wife lied about him to tending for prisoners. He was praying concerning what it was God was doing. The truth of God's superimposing sovereignty at the end of all of that was a comfort to him. And now, on his lips, it is a word of comfort from him. From him for them. And on this page for us. And that's what we want together. We want to be comforted with this truth. That's what I want for you. And the rest of the chapter is going to get us good in there. So follow me. We're going to listen to what Joseph says. We're going to look at what Joseph does. And we're going to learn from whom God uses. Let's listen to what he says, verses 4 through 8. Start in verse 5. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth, to keep you alive for many survivors. So it was not you who sent me, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh, an advisor, and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt." When you want to emphasize something, you tend to repeat it. You can ask my wife if there are times when I tend to repeat myself. I'm trying to emphasize something. We, we know that repetition helps to drive a thing home, or sometimes it doesn't help to drive a thing home. The doctrine of God's providence is on his lips, and it is on repeat as he speaks to his brothers. It is the matter of his first words to his brothers. God, 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 God. And there's an escalation. God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant of the earth. And to keep alive for you many survivors. It was not you, but God. He made me a father to Pharaoh. God is the main actor in Joseph's life as far as Joseph is concerned. God is not the only actor but an actor so big as to eclipse and make, for the purposes of this conversation, irrelevant his brother's part. The doctrine of God's providence is often either neglected or abused. That may be abused 
That is the doctrine of the sovereignty or the providence of God. It may be abused when it's used to undermine human responsibility. Uh, it does not need to do that. We, we need to acknowledge that we don't fully apprehend or comprehend how God's claim that he is in heaven and does all that he pleases intersects with human responsibility and sin and the curse. And yet, biblical authors from Jesus to Paul to the writers of our scriptures here hold these things out. Joseph holds them together. Let's hold them together. The brother's sin is portrayed negatively in the cascading consequences and harm that it has caused. Uh, The story here pulls no punches. Their envy and deceit was clearly wicked. The violence they have done to their brothers is the kind of thing for which God decisively judged the world in Noah's day. Was it unclear what God thought of these kinds of things? Joseph himself also administered a series of tests to see if they'd changed because it matters. It matters for their sake and their relationship's sake whether or not they have rejected their sin, called it what it is, and would desire with the opportunity reconciliation with Joseph. There is no comfort for any of us in God's sovereignty if we will not first do the uncomfortable thing of confronting our own sin. God's sovereignty is a comfort. I'm holding it out as that this morning, the passage does, but it's no comfort for you if you have not and you will not do the uncomfortable thing of confronting your own sin. Consider Jesus' words. So the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. He is walking and working according to the Father's will and plan. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. See that? Don't think you're wiser and more insightful and a better theologian than than Jesus. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. As it has been determined. As it has been determined. Maybe that line is the line on which your life will pivot. Our God determines these things. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Judas will not be comforted by a word concerning God's sovereignty. It was not yet a comfort on the apostle Peter's lips, and yet it would be offered as one in his first sermon. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified, guilty, and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. And so they stand before their victim. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, 
This Jesus whom you have crucified. Do you hear it? You can be on the wrong side of God's sovereignty over sin. You don't have to be. While, friend, you live and breathe, you can be on the right side of God's sovereignty. We continue. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Is that you? And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to him, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone who call, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. Believing God is sovereign in and over and through sin does not mean that we are not also responsible. For he calls them to repent and he speaks of Jesus as being delivered up according to God's definite plan. And yet we can be guilty of putting him there. So the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, his providence, can be abused when it undermines human responsibility. Or if it makes you to think that you don't have a place to respond or, or can't. It's abused, but it's also neglected. It, it may be sought, this doctrine can be, uh, for understanding. Mm, it's an interesting subject to explore. Uh, to collect verses about, to memorize scriptures on. Uh, It might be sought for arguing for, our argumentation. Um, Someone might raise this question, and so I would say this, and this is a good objection, but this is a better answer. Um, There are good books on this kind of thing, and many of you have been through them. It, It may be sought out for defense. These are good things. They're just not good enough. We seek, friends, to understand and establish and defend this doctrine because it is precious to us. If someone were to suggest that my beloved, beautiful children to them, that I am not their father, I would establish and defend the truth that I am their father. And my fatherhood is a precious truth for them that they cannot live without. And I would defend it not for fatherhood's sake as some type of concept that we need to understand. And that is interesting to me, or that is merely true, but for their sake as their great comfort and in their childhood for sure their life. So it is with the doctrine of divine providence. An answer to our distress over our sin is God's designs worked out even through sin. An antidote to anger at ourselves over sin is to know that God is over sin. What has Joseph said to us? He said this, your sin was intended to destroy me, but God has used it to preserve you and us. What you intended for destruction, God intended for preservation. Now let's look at what he does, verses 9 through 15. Let's look at what he does. First, he settles them in Goshen. Hurry up, uh, go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, 
God. That's his first word to his dad. First word to his dad is God. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. They will have their own place as a family. Second, he provides for them. Verse 11, there I will provide for you for there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all you have do not come to poverty. He settles them, he provides for them and then he, he kisses them. Verse 12, and now you see with your own eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt. Verse 14, then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all his brothers and he wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. And here is, here is their reconciliation, their reunion. And they're receiving one another after so many years. And not overlooking the sin, but that sin is eclipsed by the sovereignty of God and the whole thing. I've heard what he's said. What has he done? We'll have to squint to see this, but I want to show it to you. In God's providence, through Joseph, God has neutralized every immediate threat to his promise. God's been neutralizing threats through the whole story. You think of Abraham's lies, Isaac's lies, Isaac's favoritism, then Jacob's favoritism, Rachel's schemes, Jacob's deceptions, and there's subpoints to each of those. So is he doing the same thing here by setting them up in in Goshen, he's neutralizing a threat to the family's impurity. In this case, to intermarriage from outside the people of God that would undermine and compromise God's plan to establish a people for his own name. Others may join to the people of God, but they're not to join themselves to other peoples. In chapter 38, Judah threatened the line, intermarriage in the context of that story. Here, the family will be in Egypt, but they will be apart from the Egyptians. He settles them as a people distinct. He takes care of them. He knows that this is how it must be. Uh, he undermines, excuse me, he neutralizes another threat. By providing food for them, he neutralizes the, the threat of the, the, the disappearance of the family from the face of the earth with death and starvation. The famine was severe in the land. It was severe in the land. And by kissing them and reconciling, we see that he neutralizes the threat of family division and violence. This family would not proceed if Joseph did what a mere man might do, offended as he was. But he reconciles with his brothers and he brings the family together. So take comfort, church. God has not stopped creatively and powerfully and wisely ensuring the success of all his promises concerning you and concerning me, no matter what happens in our life or in our community or in our nation or in the world all about us. We've listened. We've looked. Now let's learn from who God uses. Sometimes his sovereignty is seen in the amazing agents he employs for his purposes. Uh, this would be especially encouraging to the first readers of this account Israel, having been delivered from Egypt, seeing now that he used Pharaoh 
Consider how Israel, delivered from Pharaoh's hand, would have heard this, verse 16, when the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come and pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And he said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the the fat of the land. He's going to give them everything, anything they need. He's going to fill them to overflowing here in God's, God's mysterious way. He is using Pharaoh to preserve and protect his people in the course of, of famine. All the best of the land of Egypt is yours. Have no concern for your goods. He uses Pharaoh. He uses these brothers. Consider how Israel now wandering in the wilderness due to their own sin, would have heard this. The sons of Israel did as told, and Joseph gave them wagons according to their command of Pharaoh. He gave them provisions for the journey. He gave them changes of clothes. With the Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. And to his father, he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread provision for his father, on the journey. And he sent his brothers on the way, and as they departed, he said to them, Don't quarrel, please. The way to get at the sin of quarreling and being angry at one another over petty things, or angry at one another over real things, or even real big things, is a really big God. They had all they needed, and what Joseph had emphasized four times over to get along on the way home. And you and I have all we need on Joseph's lips four times over on our way home as well. These brothers are not the men they were 20 years earlier. Benjamin gets five times the clothes. No problem. Everyone's good with it. But God has hardly finished transforming them, and that's why they need this command. Again, Joseph was perceptive. Nevertheless, these brothers are not blacklisted. They are enlisted. They are not sidelined. They are indeed beautifully sent. Indeed, the promise hangs on the obedience of men and women that God sees to completion. Well, what have we learned? What have we learned? We've learned that God's plan is not threatened by any man, not even us. And he puts us to work with the gospel to the ends of the earth and in a thousand other ways, and he completes his purposes. How does it go when they get home? Because we haven't read that yet. How does it go when they meet Jacob? How will Jacob respond? Verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt And came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, here it goes, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart became numb for he did not believe them. His heart didn't race at the news, his heart stopped. How much do you have to not trust the brothers to not even ask a question? The kind of word this is used here is the word you use to describe a sense of defeat at the appearance of an oncoming army. His heart went numb. It's over. 
he received this word as a final blow. The news was unbelievable, and apparently so were his sons. But Joseph, once young and unwise and imperceptive, was wise and perceptive this time, verse 27. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Remember, when Joseph had his head on a rock, all alone, but God was with him. And he had a dream of a ladder propped from the earth before him up to heaven. And angels ascending and descending back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. He was on the run because of his own sin. He was on the run run from his brother Esau because he'd tricked him out of his birthright. And he was on the way to Laban's house and there'd be some deception along the way there that he'd meet his wife and God would do some amazing things. This vision of a ladder and the promise that God would be with him was to carry him throughout life, not only to sustain him in the face of the things that would happen to him, but to give him perspective heavenly perspective in light of the things that he himself had done. Apparently, the ladder and the angels were in operation the whole time. Through human failures, God was faithful again. Through human sins, God was sovereign to keep his promise again. Verse 28, and Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is alive. I will go and see him Before I die. So, friend, don't be angry at yourself. Jesus is alive. Arise and look to him, your greater Joseph, to see Jesus who is seated on his throne, a higher throne, with your sin and your guilt and your condemnation, which was on his back, which was in his hands, and which is now under his feet. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great story in which we find ourselves, and we thank you for this story of our origins, which touches us so close to home, in fact, which cuts all the way down into our hearts and our thoughts and our conscience. And thank God that when it meets us there, it, it offers us comfort. Father, we thank you for the place that we find ourselves in, in this place between Jesus' resurrection and his return, where we have the Spirit And all the more comfort we have this very day. We pray to you, sovereign Lord. It was your hand that moved, even as wicked men crucified your son. Even as our sins put him there. Even as we would have been there, any one of the parties guilty of that act firsthand. And yet Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And Father, you, you, a broken and contrite heart, you do not despise. And on these words of Joseph to us, you mean for us to find some comfort, not to be angry with ourselves, not because we're without sin or because our sin is not egregious, but because your grace is just so great. In Christ's name we pray, amen.